As you're finding your seat, if anybody needs a Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, we want you to have a Bible. Tom in the back, the really good looking dude with the blue shirt, has a handful of Bibles. Just raise your hand and he will, uh, he'll draw a couple, couple people up front here, Tom. Yeah, we'd love everybody to open their Bibles. You can have a device and open your Bible that way too. It'll be in the English Standard Version, the ESV. You can turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, we're going to be uh, camping out in verses 32 through 37. It's a week eight in our series through Acts called The Church That Jesus Builds. So as a church that Jesus is building, our church, we're, we're learning how to do what's on our sign here that kind of lays out our values a little bit here, which is being gospel-centered, relationally driven, God glorifying. So what we see in the book of Acts is how Jesus began to build his church towards those things that we want to embody, that we want him to continue to build in us. So that's, uh, that's what we're doing as we go through the book of Acts, seeing how Jesus is building the church. And we saw last week that uh, the church, the early church, as Jesus was in the middle of beginning that building process, they're experiencing some things. They're experiencing lost people coming to saving faith in Christ. Not only that, but Peter and John, they're performing signs and wonders that give evidence that the message of the gospel is true. And not only true, but that there's power in the name of Jesus. Um, at the same time, uh, these brothers, these disciples, they're also starting to get some, some pushback and some warnings from the religious leaders who are saying, hey, we need you to stop preaching the gospel. We need you to stop healing people in the name of Jesus. And so they're starting to feel a little bit of heat. And last week we read what they did in the midst of that heat on the heels of being told, hey, you need to shut this thing down. And what happened was we read how they gathered together and they prayed for boldness. They said, Lord, help us to continue doing what we know that you've called us to do, but we need to have boldness. And so that's what they did. They gathered together, unified, praying together that God would continue to empower them as they proclaim the gospel. Today, we're going to see what kind of fruit is produced when the church remains bold and stays grounded and growing in the gospel and what that looks like and what the outflow of that is. So Sunday mornings uh, growing up at my house uh, were a lot like yours. Um, it was the only morning of the week where everyone was magically more tired or more sick than they were on every other morning of the week, right? Uh, and to add to the fun, uh, for me, it took us about an hour to get to church on Sunday. And let me tell you what a treat that process was for us. The first bad thing that happened is all the hot water was gone by the time my dad got in the shower every single Sunday morning. It's like, brother, you should know that it's probably a good idea for you to wake up a little bit earlier. He never got the message on that one. Um, Secondly, he would be waiting in this car, still getting over his lack of hot water while we were all just sort of moseying in, uh, you know, way too late for his, for his taste. After an hour of my mom yelling at my little brother and sister, because this wasn't me, uh, fighting the whole way, uh, we would roll into church just late enough that all the good parking spaces would be gone. We'd tumble out of the car, super unhappy, parents furious, and everyone would go to their separate ways, just super joyful and ready to worship, right? I have such great memories 
of Sunday mornings growing up. My mom's going to kill me if she listens to this podcast. Sorry, mom. Um, But I'm literally, I'm describing right now so many of your Sundays, which is why none of you are laughing and some of you are actually crying right now as I (laughs) just said that. Um, But the reason why I told you that not at all fictional story uh, is because the church has a tendency to drift in the direction that I just described, which is that it, it lacks unity. We were not a unified family going to church on Sundays with the exception of we were all crammed in to an eight-person passenger van, right? But it lacks unity. The church can lack togetherness. Sometimes it can function as this disconnected, independent group of individuals rather than an interdependent family of sons and daughters who happen to be because of Christ and the cross, heirs now of God the Father. And when the church embodies that identity, that latter identity, when it sees the church as who they are, uh, rather than where they attend, the result is that there's an overflow of generosity that has the gospel at its core. And so what that means for us this morning is this, is that the the gospel empowers us and empowers us to be generous stewards of the resources that God has blessed us with. So gospel generosity, which is what we're going to be talking about this morning, is when someone sees themselves so undeserving of God's grace that they give to others from an overflow of gratefulness to God. Let me just say that again. Gospel generosity is when someone sees themselves as so undeserving of God's grace that they give to others from an overflow of gratefulness to God. And so the question that I want to answer for us this morning that the text answers is, well, how the heck do we get there? What do we see at the heart of gospel generosity in the early church. Well, let's pick up in chapter 4, verse 32. I'm just going to read the first half of that first verse, and it says this, and we're going to unpack it a little bit. And it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Let's just stop right there. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So what we see here. What we see this gospel generosity that we're going to see in a minute, what it's flowing out of before anything else is that it's flowing out of a unified body, a body that is one in heart and in soul. What does it mean when he says that? What does it mean when he says all the believers were one in heart and soul or one in heart and mind? Well, it means that they were united under something, right? It means they were were united under the grace and truth of the gospel. We can be united in a bunch of things, right? Right? but most specifically to the purposes of why God is building the church and why he ever started to build the church. It's to be united under the grace and truth of the gospel. So how do we do that? Well, we do that, number one, by committing ourselves to sound doctrine, to sound teaching, to everything that the Bible says is true. We want to commit ourselves to the truth of that truth, right? And secondly, We want to guard against our own passions diluting sound doctrine. Because by the way, that's what dilutes sound doctrine, is our own sinful passions. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, he said, listen, Tim, he said, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And then he says this, check it out, he goes, And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
I mean, at least you don't have to worry about the church wandering off into myths these days, right? I mean, it's wandering off all the time, right? Why? Because we have itching ears that are fueled by a passion for things that are fulfilling our own desire rather than the passionate desire that God has for us as his church. So a unified body doesn't come from disunity with God's word, right? And that's why right now, this morning, that's why looking at the person next to you and saying, hey, you know what, man? You just believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe. That doesn't work here. It doesn't work in the church to be able just to say that, right? That's why if, if you come to membership, if you ever look at our documents, you'll see this thing that we have called a statement of faith. Well, what the heck, Ronnie? What's a statement of faith? Well, it's a statement of God's truth that we as a church declare together in order to affirm the things that we believe, right? It takes our beliefs and it puts them all into a, a neat, tidy package. It summarizes what we believe. So the question is, well, do you know then what substance believes Specifically, well, on one hand, you get to hear it every Sunday. You've already heard what substance believes. You've heard it from what we've sang so far this morning. You've heard it from the scriptures that we've read. You've heard it from the prayers that we've already prayed. You're hearing it right now from the passages that we preach. And again, this is why membership is so important, which just seems like why I'm plugging it right now, right? Conveniently. Um, because to be one in heart and soul means we need to know what we're one in. The church has to know that. So to be a unified body that is growing in the gospel, of which the outflow will be gospel generosity, we have to know what it is that we're all about. So if we're talking about unification, we got to ask the question, well, what are we unified in, right? So the Cleveland Browns, can we chat about them for a minute? The Browns, man. The Browns are of one heart and one soul. I'm just going to let you guys react however you want to the next seven statements I make. They have hearts and minds for their teammates, right? They have hearts and minds for the city of Cleveland. They have hearts and souls for the Super Bowl ring they hope to achieve someday, probably not this year. They share that passion for what? What do they share a passion for? The game, for the game that they love. What do they do? Well, they train together. They push each other. They encourage one another. They grow as a team together, kind of, under one coach who will continue to develop them in their pursuit of achieving their goal. In other words, every time they hit the field, they are declaring their mission to win games, right? So what are some things that could derail their mission of a Super Bowl ring? besides being the Cleveland Browns? Well, it would be simple things, right? It'd be things like staying up late, not getting enough sleep, eating junk food, ignoring their diet, slacking off in their workouts, grumbling against their coach, allowing relationships on the team to go sour so that they're not coming together on the field in the way that they need to, both physically and emotionally, so that they operate as a team pursuing the one goal that they're hoping to achieve. By the way, the church is far more united than this. You're like, no kidding. The church is far more united than this. We have far more one heart and one mindedness and one soulness than this. Paul says in Romans 6, 5, he says, for we have been united with him. 
with Christ in a death like his. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, he says, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we are united with Christ. What gives us our unification as one body who are of one heart and one soul is what's underneath that, what undergirds that unification is the death and the resurrection of Christ. Then he says this, listen, he goes, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So that's what a functioning body of believers is endeavoring towards. That's the goal. That's what we're pressing towards, right? To no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, Paul says, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. So it's not just dying to sin, but it's now how do we live our lives as a unified body that has died to sin is now living unto Christ, right? So the heart... We start talking about generosity, which we're going to be getting into here in a second. The heart of gospel generosity is a unified body of believers who passionately pursue their love for God, for one another and for their neighbor, while at the same time crucifying those passions that lead to disunity from Christ and with the body. Now, let me tell you what I saw last week at the end of our service as we prepared for Fall Fest that happened last Tuesday, man. What did I see? But a bunch of you, man, just in here, committed, staying late after service, moving chairs, sweeping floors, cleaning up the crumbs, setting up the tables, decorating, preparing, doing all the things that we would have to do as a body to be prepared to invite our neighbors and our community into. And then let me tell you what I saw last Tuesday night at Fall Fest. Well, more of the same. As we had thousands of people that finished trick-or-treating and our doors were open, we welcomed them in, we invited them in. We created a space that was inviting. We created a space that said, hey, we love you and we want you with us, right? So there was something in that that required us to be unified to accomplish that in a way that wasn't just trying for us to get more stripes, but it was a sense saying, this is who we are because of who we love. This is who we are because of who has loved us. Can we extend that love out? So out of this unification comes this particular kind of love and generosity. And so that's just a snapshot of something we saw in the last week that happened in our body that we can say, well done, right? So that's the first thing we see at the heart of gospel generosity is a unified body. The second thing we see is stewardship over ownership. Look what the last half of 32 says there. It says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So the first four letter word we tell our kids not to say is what? Nobody wants to answer that one. Mine. Right, yeah, you guys all know. And then we spend the rest of our lives trying to accumulate as many things as we can to call ours. By the way, that's a four-letter word too, right? O-U-R-S. I mean, am I lying about that? I mean, so gospel generosity is seeing everything you have as a gift from God to number one, be blessed by. And then number two, to bless others with. But to do that means you have to see, I have to see my possessions as belonging to someone else entirely, right? It's kind of like handling other people's things. 
Have you ever had the opportunity to handle like other people's valuables? You ever had to, you know, house sit or maybe babysit or care for someone else's pets? If you really love the person, if you really love the person who you're house sitting for or babysitting for, you will use the utmost care when, it, you've been, uh, when you've been given over their things to manage and to take care of. You want to return their things or babies, uh, hopefully in better shape than, than what they left them to you in. And sometimes it's worse, right? That's why we have grace, right? So uh, Zach Watson borrowed my car while we were out of town last May. Uh, and when we got home, that thing, oh my gosh, man, that thing was washed. The oil was changed. Tires were rotated, you know? I was like, dude, why didn't you just go all the way and buy us a new car, right? Why don't you just keep this thing all the time and we'll borrow it from you when we need to drive it, right? He left it to us better than we left it to him. So picture this with your imagination. Picture God dropping by the house one day and saying, hey, I have some gifts for you. And first thing I want you to do with these gifts I'm going to drop on you is number one, I want you to really enjoy them. Do you think of God like that? Do you think of God as somebody who gives you gifts and actually pauses and says, hey, enjoy those gifts? Just relax, dude. Enjoy the gifts I've given you. But picture God coming, dropping gifts on your lap and saying, number one, I want you to enjoy them. And then number two, he says, give some of them away because I've given you more than you need. And then he goes, oh yeah, by the way, I almost forgot before I left, when you need more, just let me know and I'll take care of you. Right? That's a picture of what God has given us to steward that he owns, which is better than if he gave us things to own, which have the tendency to take possession of us rather than the other way around. That's why there's such this big idea in scripture of God being the one who provides everything out of his own bounty because he is the creator, because he is the owner, because everything that you're wearing, everything that you have, your house, your clothes, I mean, just go across the board. It's all his. What a great thing that we can acknowledge that as much as we struggle with it, staying ours. But to know that, no, 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 it's actually all his. It's actually all his. So when we begin to see everything we have as the sole possession of God alone, our hearts do something. They move from one place to the other. They move from ownership to stewardship. They move from ownership to stewardship. Well, what, what is stewardship? Well, Peter says it in 1 Peter 4. He says this. He describes it as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So that means it's not all like one thing. It doesn't mean that he just gives you all one thing and you have one thing that you have to offer and give to the other person. It's a varied grace. So out of God's infinite riches of gifts that he gives us, he asks us to serve one another and be good stewards because everything you have basically is a grace from God and there's varieties of it. And then Peter says this, whoever speaks, let him speak as one, the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And he says this, listen, in order that in everything, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So we get this sense when we start talking about stewardship over ownership, that God has something in mind with the things that he gives you. He has something in mind when he unifies you in one heart and one soul and blesses you with the possessions, however many, 
and however small. So he doesn't get all up, up in, in arms about the amounts here. He just says, all of you have been given something. And then Peter tells us it's for a purpose. It's for that in order, everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. There's an end game with what God wants us to do with our things and how we bless other people. So the church gets to gospel generosity. We arrive in this place. We cultivate this thing by being a unified body that practices stewardship over ownership. And finally, the third thing and the final thing is by pressing in to grace. By pressing into grace. 33, let's pick up. It says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and lay it at, laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. 36, and thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now this thing's gonna get ugly next week when we dive into uh, these two characters, Ananias and uh, Sapphira. But right now, we see the body coming together, taking the abundance of what they had, laying it at the apostles' feet and pressing into the grace that God has given them to unlock the generosity that was given them through Christ, right? So this is what's interesting to me, right? Why does Luke go here in 33? With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. It feels like he should have just gone from the end of verse 32 to 34, right? Or to the, to the final part of 33. So why in the middle, follow me here, why in the middle of pointing out the generosity of the church does he tell everybody that the disciples continue to testify to the resurrection with great power? Where does this fit in? Where does this verse even fit in when he's just talking about generosity and unification? Well, actually, uh, this is how we understand where everything else fits in. Luke doesn't want us to forget that the resurrection of the Lord is where life is generated and gospel generosity flows from that. Here's the thing. If the disciples aren't testifying, and we're not reminded of this, if they're not testifying to the resurrection, Luke is describing a charitable organization, not the church. God's grace was so powerfully at work. Why? Because his power was being illuminated by their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. So again, let's remember something here is that the power is not in the giving. So whatever guilt we bring to the table with our, with our giving, let that become alleviated in your soul because the power is not in the giving. The power is in the giver who transforms grumbling people into giving people. That's the power. So a testimony of generosity flows from a testimony of the gospel. It's the only way it actually works. So for these testimonies to remain alive and authentic, they demand that we press into grace. But what does that mean? What does that mean to press, right? So every morning we have this thing called a French press. It's how we make our coffee because I don't know. That's what we have, right? 
So what we do is we get, we get, a, we get a, a scoop of coffee. It goes, into the, it goes into the little, like, what's the word? I'm on the spot and I can't remember anything. You guys know what a French press is. Then we put hot boiling water into it and then we press down and all of the grounds go to the bottom, but the flavor comes through the hot water at the top and we have this delicious cup of coffee. I can't believe I explained it that well. Um, but pressing into grace means that I view everything I am and everything I do through an overwhelming sense of gratefulness to God for saving a wretch like me. And so all of this grace is being pressed into my life as those riches of God's glory through gratefulness are kind of flowing out from me with the flavor of Jesus Christ, right? If that makes sense, right? So in that, we are simultaneously so aware of, number one, the severity of our sinfulness, and two, the unfathomable loving kindness of God that, that the flavor of generosity then floods out from our heart and through our hands to help those in need, right? It's like it can't be contained. You know, sometimes I push down on that French press and it's a little harder because we have too much coffee, but I'm telling you, that thing's going to get down, Right? And that water is going to seep through those grounds. And I'm going to get that delicious cup of coffee. You better believe me. That's going to happen, right? So when we see the church contributing to the needs of others, it's a testimony to the grace of Jesus, a grace we need to be ruthless in pressing into so that we hold true to truth. We need to hold true to the truth because we can hold true to a bunch of things that are truth-like that aren't really truth. And when that happens, we start derailing a little bit. Look what Paul said in the book of Philippians chapter three. He said, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but he said this, I press on to make it my own, which is what the disciples were doing here, which is what the early church was doing. He said, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So we press into grace. Why? Because we're, we don't own ourselves. We're not the masters of our own destiny any longer. What a beautiful thing that is. So we can press into grace because we are owned by somebody else that makes us not have to own the things he's given to us. Why? Because everything is his, right? Everything is his. So what does it mean then for substance to practice gospel generosity like the early church. What does it mean? Well, it means that we come together in what we believe and we continue to unify under the truth of the gospel. It means that everything we own, all the blessings that God has given us, we recount those things. We recount those things. And by recounting those things and remember in the manner in which they were given to us, which was death on a cross by Christ, we move ourselves from this place of ownership into stewardship. And then we press into grace. Why? Because we're not our own. And we're reminding ourselves of the cost that it took to get us to this place of gospel generosity. And then you know what happens on the heels of that? What happens is that when we have an abundance, we get to fill a lack in somebody else's life. And God always gives us an abundance. Again, different percentages. But where there's a lack, we take what we have and we give it away. We practice gospel generosity because what's happening is the good thing that's happened to our hearts, we're allowing to affect the lives and the needs 
of others. So the goodness of God is flowing through us to affect the goodness of others. What does it mean when substance does not practice gospel generosity? Well, it means that we're not united very well in the gospel. It means that we see ownership where God has called for stewardship. It means we're stingy with the possessions, the gifts, the talents, the time, the space, the houses that aren't actually ours. Well, who suffers for this? Well, we suffer. The poor suffers. The church suffers. The world looks at us as being insufferable because we look like actors. They know acting. The world knows acting. But when we are united, when we practice stewardship over ownership, when we press in to the grace that is working powerfully through us, the fruit we will see is a peculiar kind of generosity. It's something the world can see. What can the world see in us? What did the world see in us on Tuesday night at Fall Fest, right? They saw something that they can behold. They saw something of which they can say, who are these people? What are they trying to get out of this? What's the agenda, right? And when they ask, we can say, I've already gotten everything out of this because everything I have is owned by Jesus, including myself. I'm owned by Jesus. So instead of being the pastor who does the sermon series on giving every December, which we don't do, I want to do this instead. I want to preach generosity every week. I want to get to the heart behind the sacrifices God calls the church to make. For some of you, it's going to be your time. Your time is a valuable possession for you. Your time is something that you think you have control over, that you own. Instead of it being something that you get to steward for the good of the church and for the glory of God. For some of you, it's your talent. Man, you're so good at so many things. But man, you kind of pull back, you hold back. You don't want to give those things away. Maybe you've been hurt in the past. Maybe you've been taken advantage of because of some of your talents in the church. We understand that. But for you, that's a way that you would sacrifice to be generous to the church. For some of you, it's your treasure. It's your, it's your money. And money, that's a hard thing for you. It's a hard thing for you to relinquish, to let go of. It's a very fearful thing for you. Maybe it's become something that is bigger in your life than God has ever intended it to be. So we struggle in these areas and I want to acknowledge the struggle in these areas. I also want to acknowledge the generosity of this church because I think it's been amazing and I think it's been mind-blowing in so many ways. And I think it's been worthy of boasting in so many ways, this sacrificial generosity where you haven't just chased after your own selfish ambitions, but you have contributed well to the needs of the church. I'm going to finish with a quote from a guy named Marshall Siegel. He's a writer for a website called Desiring God. And he said this better than I could say it. So I just want to read what he says. So if you just want to listen to this, it's not incredibly long. 
and then we will close. But this is what he says in talking about the church and gospel generosity and our motivations. He says, the Christians in that first church were captured by a vibrant, dynamic, and personal vision of God. But that did not keep them from focusing on one another. They did not have to choose between being a church going hard after the gods seated in heaven and a church dedicated to the needs around them here on earth. Remember when Scott preached on this a few weeks ago, Acts chapter 2, and it was this, one of the passages said, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And then Marshall goes on to say, Christianity did not isolate believers to focus exclusively on their own relationship with Jesus, but made each believer another vital vein in the body of Christ. Each of them carrying what others need from God to the one in need. And then he says, God promises to meet our every need. We learn that in Matthew 6. And many times, if not most often, he meets our needs through another believer. He gifts each of us gifts, not G-I-F, G-I-F-T-S, each of us, not for self-expression or self-fulfillment. What? But to fill what is lacking in someone else by meeting genuine needs. God has given each of us grace that was not meant to end with us but to extend to someone else. But without selfless and sacrificial compassion, grace ends up in storage, not in action. And then he finishes by saying this. The first Christians felt so secure in God's promises that they let go of all they had to help one another. So to the watching world, it was unexplainably selfless and foolishly generous. Foolishly generous. As happened later in Macedonia, quote, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. That was Paul talking to the Corinthians. But then he finishes with this line, joy faced with need always looks like compassion and sacrifice. In short, it looks like the cross. And then he finishes with this question, is your community radically selfless and generous toward one another. And so let me just tell you that my boast to others is that you are. But my encouragement to us is that we become even more so. And by even more so, I mean we become more united, more committed to stewardship over ownership, and even more faithful, intentional, and joyful about pressing in to the grace of Jesus by boldly proclaiming his resurrection, a resurrection that has raised us to newness of life in Christ. Christ, who is the sum total of all we have and all we need. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the generosity that we have received from the finished work of Christ on the cross is the reason we have peace with you it is the reason we have forgiveness. It is the reason why we don't have to be in despair today. Even if our situations and our circumstances feel very much so like they're in despair. Lord, we pray like the early church that you would unite us 
in the truth of the gospel, that we would vigorously pursue sound doctrine as a church, God. Lord, that we would choose stewardship over ownership and you would begin a work that would help us to more greatly understand what that means. And God, that we would press into your grace, which is that unmerited favor that we received from the cross. And nothing that we did, nothing we could ever do could earn your favor, but it was all a work of grace. So God, you're not asking for us to clean all this up before we come to you and ask for these things. But God, you are good to continue to work these things out in our lives as people who are recipients of your salvation. So God, would you go with us as a generous church that seeks to be more generous? God, that seeks to be um, less attached to the things that are enslaving the world that threaten to enslave us. Would you free our hearts in those ways? Would you give us a, just another fresh batch of grace today in those areas, Lord, that may be convicting us? And let us remember, Lord, that it's not what we give to you that earns our favor from you, but our favor has been earned by Christ who gave everything for the sake of you and your glory. We thank you for this truth. Pray that it continues to transform us as a church in Christ's name. Amen.